Listening to Ideas on Trapped with Toby Lawson. Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Ideas on Trap podcast. On today's episode, we are going to be talking about insecurity in Nigeria. If you ask any Nigerian today what they think the number one problem that political leadership should tackle is. I am fairly certain that security will be the overwhelming answer. For example, in the last week alone, there have been two deadly attacks in Ondo and Kaduna states, with scores of people murdered in their homes and places of worship. Go back a week further than that, and the number of such murderous attacks would have risen to six. If you go back a few months further, you count dozens more of such attacks with thousands of people killed or kidnapped. What many Nigerians find depressing is that the problem is worsening and spreading to all parts of the country without any hope that it might abate anytime soon. Politicians seeking elective positions in the next year's election are making promises to end the crisis. But given how much it has worsened, under the current administration, despite similar promises, leaves very little room for optimism. In the light of this, I speak to my guests on today's show, James Barnett and Dr. Mortala Rufai. Our conversation is about what is now known as banditry in the northwest of Nigeria. We talked about the origins of banditry, the nuances of the many factors at play, corruption, and the failure of local governance. Dr. Murtala Rufai is a professor of history at Osman Danfodio University in Sokoto, Nigeria, and a fellow at the Center for Democracy and Development West Africa in Abuja. James Barnett is a Nigerian-based Fulbright researcher, a non-resident research fellow at the Hudson Institute in Washington, and a fellow at the Institute of African Diaspora Studies at the University of Lagos. Together, they have written some of the most illuminating and detailed analysis on the banditry phenomenon, based on months of underground research and interviews. My best hope is that people with the relevant authority and legitimacy learn from their work and start doing the right things to tackle this problem. Ideas on Trap is sponsored by iInvest. iInvest is Nigeria's foremost digital platform for trading financial products like treasury bills, fixed deposit notes, commercial papers, euro bonds, and many more. It is the leading financial services marketplace that gives you access to investment opportunities from various financial services providers within a single secure platform. Download the iInvest app on your Google Play Store or iOS App Store today and start investing at your convenience from anywhere in the world. Terms and conditions apply. And now, let's listen to the podcast. So, 
I'll start right at the end, which is the it's not the most recent attack, but the Kaduna train attack was heavy in people's memory, mentality, and because of the status of some of the people that were involved. Yeah. And in the weeks after, there has been suggestions that the banditry issue is sort of evolving into something rather different, maybe something akin to Boko Haram or Iswap tactics. And some have even suggested that there are some evidence that both groups are now working together. So I, I like to take it from there because in both your paper and your article on this, you suggested that this is a problem that has the potential to evolve even more dangerously. So is this part of that evolution? And if so, what can you tell us about the background to that and where it's likely to go next? I think um, I'll just start quickly. Um, in terms of kind of the, the relationship between the bandits and, and Boko Haram, you know, the term that we, we talk more generally about jihadists because really there are kind of at least three different primary factions of what was once Boko Haram in Nigeria today. There's Iswap, there's the original Boko Haram, uh, which we use the acronym JAS, which was led by Abu Bakr Shakao until May of last year when he was killed. And then there's also the Ansaru splinter faction of Boko Haram. So when looking at relationships between bandits and jihadists, I think, if anything, our study was maybe a bit more skeptical of some of the claims that, you know, by 2021, by last year, there was already more speculation. You had more kind of comments from government officials, commentators, journalists saying, ah, you know, the bandits, they're being recruited by Boko Haram, they're working together. I think our study was in some ways a bit more skeptical of the degree of, I would say, co-optation. You know, we, we kind of pushed back to some extent against this idea that the jihadists were coming in and recruiting all the bandits and that they were kind of transforming the conflict. I think our argument was that the conflict in the Northwest for now is very much still one being driven by the bandits rather than by Boko Haram or the jihadists. We do note, as, as you say, I think there is definitely room for kind of closer potential cooperation. I think that from what we're beginning to see of the Kaduna train attack, the evidence so far, the details I've heard so far, there are kind of concerning issues there. But I think that uh, for now, you know, even kind of recognizing that the Kaduna train attack is a a notable attack, a very uh, serious one. And obviously, the situation is still ongoing in terms of the, the situation with the hostages, negotiations. So I think it's good to kind of avoid commenting too much uh, right now, as the situation is rather uncertain. But I, I think my view is still that one of the impediments that's kind of historically prevented the jihadists from getting closer to the bandits is that the bandits, for the most part, they really prize their autonomy. It's, it's very much part of their modus operandi to operate very independently. They will cooperate with, you know, different gangs will cooperate with each other. But banditry is definitely, um, is an activity that in some ways kind of rewards autonomy. You know, the groups are not as rigidly structured as, say, jihadist organizations. It's an area where many people today, if they want to get rich, they can take up arms and become a bandit. And so I think because the bandits kind of value their autonomy, and also just given the fact that they've become, frankly, so powerful in recent years, they are not necessarily 
in such desperate need to kind of be recruited or trained or equipped or supported by jihadists. So I think my view is that there are opportunities from the perspective of jihadists to work with bandits in certain instances, you know, to cooperate on certain operations. But I think uh, as we've seen with, for example, especially the group Ansaru, which has tried uh, in the past several years to recruit bandits to say, uh, you should stop acting like bandits, you should join our group, your fight is not with uh, Muslim people, it's with the Nigerian government. They go on these preaching tours and their efforts have really fallen flat. The bandits have not been interested in joining Ansaru. And so there have actually been many clashes recently, I think as recently as a week ago was the last one. Um, and so, you know, the, the situation in the Northwest is very volatile, many different militants, many different gangs. Uh, and sometimes they work together, sometimes they fight together. But I think for the foreseeable future, that the jihadist element in the Northwest, this Boko Haram, this Ansaru, it's a problem, it's a challenge, it makes things more complicated for sure. But I think that, in my view, the primary challenge in the Northwest is still bandits, it's not Boko Haram. I should just continue from where we start. You see, the fundamental problem is uh, the bandits are not in any way a monolithic criminal formation. There are quite a number of uh, bandit gangs and also bandit groups operating separately and individually. Now, having the unity of the bandits into a one united uh, organization, for instance, it is indeed a very difficult exercise. Because when we talk about a bandit group or a bandit gang, we've seen cases and instances where three, four, five people, for instance, form of a gang and they have their own independent and absolute autonomy. They could actually do and undo. They may decide to go on attack. They may decide to carry out abduction. They may decide to, to, to do whatever they feel like doing. So now, putting all these bandits together into a one single platform, it is indeed a very difficult exercise. And there are also quite a number of them that consider this jihadist group including Boko Haram and Saru and uh, Iswab that he pointed out clearly as their traditional enemies. And on several occasions, attempts by these groups to bring to the fore the members of the bandits, for instance, became so much challenging to the extent that some of the bandit groups and also bandit leaders were making it very clear to them that our problem, as we were arguing, is not with the Nigerian state. That is what we came to understand. The problem of banditry is basically and fundamentally local. Until fairly recently, that the whole conflict is now taking a more national dimension. You go to the rural areas, you interact with the bandits, they will tell you that their problem is local and solution to also their problem also remain local. Local in the sense that they more or less have problem with the Ansake, with the vigilante and other local authorities, but even with their state governments. So now, my argument has always been bringing these bandits, about 120 guns, operating separately and loosely, individually, into a one single platform to probably relate with any of the jihadist groups or any of the criminal groups, like the case of Boko Haram, Iswab, and Ansari, is actually going to be a very difficult exercise. But I am also not disputing the fact that there are very few number of these bandits that subscribe to
review of Ida Ansaru or Boko Haram. For instance, the general belief and also accusation, which is actually not confirmed about the train attack, is actually something executed and conducted under the leadership of Ali Kachala. Ali Kachala has been a very good friend of Dogo Gide, who were all initially bandits under the control of Harendaji. Now, there is that possibility of having that continuity in the relationship between Ali Kachala, who was until probably recently a bandit, relating with Dogo Gide, who is actually his traditional friend while they were under the leadership and control of Harendaji. Of course, Going by the pattern of the attack, in terms of the train attack, for instance, we've seen actually certain features and characteristics that differ slightly with the case of the bandit. And that is why people have the belief that, yeah, there must be actually connections with other international terrorist groups like the ISWAP. Some said the ISWAP, some are even talking about the Ansaru and people also talking about the involvement of Boko Haram. But we've also seen historically, as far back as 2016, 2017, when some Boko Haram elements were sent to the Northwest to come and actually recruit and create a certain ideology of the bandits. At the end of the day, some of these members of Boko Haram became bandits. Because of what? Because they feel there is comfort, there is joy, there is freedom, and also there is wealth in banditry compared to and that has to do with nothing other than the level of independence and autonomy that is within the bandit world. I would just jump in real quickly. I think he did a very good job of explaining how the bandits surprised their autonomy and that issue of the jihadists. He brought up the, the character Dogo Gide, who I think is worth describing very quickly. He's an interesting figure in terms of understanding, okay, who's a bandit, who's a jihadist, and maybe some of the listeners who don't follow this issues as closely, but He's someone that we profiled a bit in our article, our study for the CTC Sentinel, which is a big research report on the bandit jihadist relations. And he's someone very interesting because he's a bandit, but he has had very close ties with jihadists for several years. There's disagreements, you know, different sources, different people will place his first contact with jihadists at different points. But he's someone that a couple of years ago, he was mostly saying, I don't have any ties with Boko Haram. He's denying any relationship with jihadists. But now, in the past year or so, he started to act as if he is a jihadist. But even as we did when we were digging through and doing our analysis, what we found is that he is maybe even now pretending to be more of a jihadist than he really is. Because he, he will release these videos or he will be communicating with intermediaries. He will be trying to sound like a jihadist, but he doesn't actually even know like the proper Arabic phrases. In one instance, he refers to the leader of ISIS to suggest that he is a member of Daesh of ISIS, but he's referring to the dead leader who's been dead for over a year. And so I think it's one of the challenges of doing this research in the Northwest. It's why I think it's good to be very cautious and skeptical and try to kind of scrutinize all the data coming out. Because on the one hand, sometimes like Dogo Gide, a couple years ago, he would have understated his contacts with jihadists. He would have pretended that he doesn't have any at all, whereas in fact, we do know that he has he has been in contact with various jihadists for some time. But then he could also maybe overstate his level of influence um, because there are instances in which the bandits find it advantageous to maybe assume the appearance of jihadists because they think it will make them seem more powerful 
or because they think that it will give them some sort of advantage in negotiations, for example. That was the case with the Kankara abductions back in December 2020 that was conducted by Awad Dadawa in, in Katsina. So it's a very important question, you know, how much are these bandits and jihadists working together? And it's one that I think uh, requires a bit of a skeptical eye that you, you know, because sometimes things are not necessarily as they appear on the surface. And sometimes these bandits, they have complicated kind of uh, calculus that will determine how they interact with jihadists, whether they want to give jihadists credit for an operation or, or something like that. So I think that the Dogogide example is a very interesting. The sense I'm getting is this is a bit hard to predict because the tactics and the motives are constantly changing. So before I draw you guys into the issue of causality, which is going to be my next question, briefly, even forget James Stop. Do you think that's part of the reason why the government and the security forces have not been able to deal with this issue because it's constantly in flux, it's unpredictable, and like he said, there is need for a patient and cautious strategy. Also, and this is a bit speculative, are there people in government, to your knowledge, who are also aware, and why is that not reflected in the security approach? Well, you see, what is important about the approach to this particular security threat, in my opinion, is to have a detailed, deeper, and clear understanding of the issues. And even within the bandit cycle, for instance, we've seen people in the rural areas with AK-47 and AK-49, 247, that are not bandits. You can see a major problem now. When you define a bandit on the basis of weapon, for instance, you've completely missed the issue. Why? Because some of these people bearing these uh, weapons are basically and fundamentally using it for self-defense. Without these weapons, for instance, the bandit will, within a tinkle of an eye, wipe them out. And that becomes a very serious problem and also challenging to the Nigerian security operatives as well. So now, the government actually, in my opinion, the security operatives are doing their utmost best. But their best is not enough. It is not enough because there is still a gap. And what is that gap? A knowledge gap of what actually is happening in the film. It's not just about going kinetic. Before you go kinetic, before you take the kinetic approach, for instance, it is far more important to have an underground knowledge of what is obtainable in the rural areas. For instance, the Gide we are talking about long time ago has established a mutual relationship and understanding with the rural communities. And I'm telling you, the rural communities around Dansa, around Babadruka, around Birnimwari, around Madata, around Tandala, will never or have never seen Dogugide as a problem or as a threat. But rather, what he is after is the abduction of school children, abduction of expatriates, and his major problem is with the federal government. 
And as long as he will keep on fighting the states, the local communities have no problem with him. They may even decide to support him. And at times, getting credible intelligence from the rural areas by these security agencies becomes a very serious problem because the rulers will rather relate with the bandits than with the Nigerian state. You can see a major problem, a major problem here. And again, because of this level of intermingling between the bandits, where areas that are dominated by the bandits, and also with Boko Haram elements, where areas dominated by the Boko Haram elements, with the rural communities, it becomes a very difficult exercise for the security agencies to execute operations in those areas. And the major dilemma they are facing today, I'm talking about the agencies, the security agencies, is the issue of the collateral damage. If at all you are going to address this issue head on, then definitely the issue of the collateral damage will be 100%. Why? Because you cannot differentiate who is a bandit and who is not, who is a member of Boko Haram and who is not, who is a passive and active collaborator of these people. And these are some of the issues that actually compounded the issue more. So we cannot say that the security agencies are not doing anything in the field, but in my opinion, what they are doing is not enough. What is important is not going kinetic alone, but let us have a clear and deeper understanding of the issues. And for that to be done, a lot of underground researches need to be conducted. And a lot of sensitization and mobilization and winning the support and confidence of the rulers or the locals must be done, without which I think we are likely going to continue this war to a foreseeable future. You want to weigh in again? Uh, yeah, I, mean, I guess. I guess I would just add, um, I think in addition to everything that Dr. Rufai has just said, one other challenge, as Dr. Rufai noted in, in previous answer to your question, that you know the issue with banditry, in many ways, it's very local. But it's also become much more of a national issue. And this also, in some ways, complicates the response of the state, because the state itself is not monolithic, right? If you look at you know who is involved in trying to address this issue of banditry, very often these issues are occurring at a very local level, within a particular district, within a particular emirate, within a particular local government area. But also it's become much more of a national issue. The security forces, particularly the military, since the launch of uh, the first major military offensive operation of Harlem Kunama, that was now, what, six, seven years ago, the military has also been engaged in the Northwest in, in these anti-banditry operations. And so sometimes, there have been issues of kind of a lack of coordination between all the various stakeholders on the side of, you know, the government, if you will, broadly defined to include district officials, traditional rulers, local stakeholders like that, where sometimes you'll have one community is actually attempting to negotiate something like a peace deal with some of the local bandits or an amnesty with the local bandits at the same time that the military is conducting a military offensive in the area. And so this kind of erodes trust. Or likewise, there will be times where, you know, a certain area is being really badly affected by the bandits, but the military is focusing on another area because their forces are overstretched. And so I think it's one of the challenges that uh, Nigeria faces is insofar as looking at, okay, who are the authorities or the stakeholders that are tasked with addressing this issue of banditry? And uh, how can you increase 
between the state governments, but also between the state and the federal governments, between the state and the local governments, between the formal authorities and the more informal or traditional authorities, which in many regions uh, still have a very significant kind of informal influence. So that's also been one of the challenges. And it's, it's reflected to some extent, as, as he noted, in the very fractured nature of the bandits themselves. We were, we were uh, discussing this yesterday with some colleagues of mine here at Unilag after the presentation, one of whom was from the, the Niger Delta area, and we're comparing and contrasting. He was saying, why can't they do what they did in the Delta? You know, what is the difference between what's happening in the Delta and what's happening in the Northwest? And uh, Dr. Rufai put it very well. He said, you know, in the Delta, the militants could speak with one or two or three voices, but this is a big challenge for the bandits, that there's so, anyone can form a gang these days. There are just so many bandits that there's no one person you can talk to represents all the bandits and you can negotiate with. Mm. And I think uh, added to the issue of this uh, interagency rivalry that you've spoken about, it is actually a major challenge. And when you look at the operations against banditry in the Northwest, it has become a military affair. And if all is well, if things are moving the way they should, this is an issue that's supposed to be addressed by the police. But where are the Nigerian police force today when you're talking about banditry? Nobody talks about the police. And not even the police, for instance. We have the civil defense. These are very local problems, local security challenges that actually supposed to be addressed by these people. But as we speak today, it is actually the military that is in charge of addressing some of these issues. And look at it. The role of the military within the context of... Uh, provision of uh, internal security, for instance. Virtually, there are so many operations taking place virtually in every part of the country. Yeah. 36 states, including Abuja, for instance, define different military operations. Look at the number of the military within the context of the increasing rate of crime and the violence, insecurity, for instance. The two will not in any way match. And that becomes a very serious problem. And by extension, the military are overstretched and overwhelmed by the level of conflict taking place in the country. And not only that, this problem of banditry, just like I said earlier, it is a local, basically a local problem. And it is something that actually requires the activities of special forces. Do we really have the special forces within even the military, for instance, to address this issue? Because it's not just an affair of, of course, nobody talks about the state departments and the, the underground role they're supposed to play in this. So virtually, it is the military operating alone. And this same military we're talking about are gradually overwhelmed by the volume and also the gravity of, of, the, of the problem. They don't even know in some cases where to start from identifying who is their friend and who is their enemy becomes a problem. The attack on the train, Abuja Kaduna train we are talking about, is not in any way aimed at the victims. Rather, to send a danger signal to the Nigerian state. And they've actually succeeded in doing that. And as we speak, identifying where these people are becomes a huge problem to virtually all the security agencies. Simply because of what? Because of lack of harmony, lack of coordination, and lack of peaceful working uh, relations amongst 
all the security resources. I don't want to lean too hard on the security angle, at least for now, because I mean, primarily you guys are researchers, not policy advisors, at least for the purpose of this conversation. Uh, so let's go back a little bit, because in your work, you guys stated that the manifestation of this is multidimensional. There's elements of criminality going on, economic opportunism, inter-ethnic clashes. You know, there's also the issue of climate change and uh, damage to the environment and the strain that puts on resources between farmers and herders and many other interests. But what ties this all together, right? How did this become such a national flashpoint? Because I recall maybe 2016 when these attacks started blasting on the pages of the newspaper, we don't even know the word bandit. <laughs> Right, bandit made it into the national zeitgeist much later. You know, it was always hardest, Fulani hardsmen. Yeah, you know that's that, that's the. And I mean, at some point, the presidency was claiming that they are actually foreigners. Yeah, you know, who come to attack locals and you know carry out criminality and all that. So, help me in as many words as you can, untangle the causality of this. How, how did this escalate? I think Dr. Rufai can give the, I mean, it's very multidimensional, and he's the historian and has been looking at this for a long time. And, you know, in our different reports, we've explained this, yes, it's, you know, there's issues of land use, there's issues of ethnicity, all these different factors that go into it. I think the one that I always stress, at least coming from, you know, from my background, I worked in Washington, see for several years, I'm still in contact with people there. Like when people talk about farmer herder conflict in Africa, and very often in DC, the first thing that kind of, it's like people have a very reductionist view of it. That's in many ways kind of very apolitical in some ways. They think uh, farmers and herders used to get along and then climate change meant there were fewer, there's fewer land, fewer resources, and so now they're fighting each other. And climate change, it's, it's definitely real, it's definitely a problem. It's, it's absolutely aggravating the situation there. But I think that leaning too hard on the climate change angle, and you see sometimes governments doing this, not just Nigeria, but other governments, they'll say, ah, you know, the problem here is climate change. It's a way to escape responsibility, mm -hmm. right? Because you say, you throw up your hands and say, we didn't do it's this. It's not right? my fault. It's not yeah. my fault. I think that the one, kind of one of the central issues that is seen in every aspect of how this conflict escalated from people becoming angry, to the weapons flowing into the region, to people not trusting their neighbors, to not trusting the authorities. One of the central issues is corruption. And this is, this is an issue everywhere in Nigeria, right? It's not just in the Northwest, but the specific ways it played out in the Northwest, I think, had a, a very pivotal role to play. From people not feeling that they could trust the criminal justice system or the authorities to handle disputes or legal matters related to land use, farmer herder issues. Herdsmen, I felt that they were really being extorted because they were seen as kind of an easy target by authorities, whether it's police, village heads, judges in the courts. They were seen as people that could easily be extorted. And then just everything from the fact that, I mean, the IGP announced the other day that something like 85,000 AK-47s that belong to the police are unaccounted for, yeah. right? And you wonder how you go out and, you know, we've both, we've both interviewed bandits. We've seen nine-year-olds with AK-47s. 
How is it that that happens? It's not all coming from the Nigerian military or police stockpiles, but you know there are many reasons that there are so many weapons in West Africa today. But corruption is a huge challenge, both in the inability to prevent weapons from flowing into and around the country, and also the fact that very often weapons that are intended for use by the Nigerian state find a way into the hands of criminals. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I could go on on that, but I think interviewing people in the Northwest, you ask them, how did this start? Very often they'll, they'll talk about uh, you know, corruption, corruption being the challenge. Mm-hmm. I think he has actually said it all. What is, far more, what is far more important is the issue of the corruption, the issue of corruption he's talking about. But again, added to that is, you see, the collapse in our family value system actually added to the crisis. Situations where we have uh, families that could not in any way take care of their children within the context of, in some cases, poverty, unemployment, underemployment, all plays significant role in the conflict. And also within the context of the traditional authorities, again, it's, it becomes a very serious problem. And the point he pointed out on the issue of corruption, corruption within the traditional rulers contributed and contributed significantly to the escalation of, of the conflict. But there are lots of issues lumped together, more especially this issue of injustice. All people contacted and also interacted, interviewed on this uh, issue of rural banditry are pointing to the issue of injustice. Injustice in all sense of the word. Injustice from the traditional authorities, injustice from the security agencies, injustice from virtually every angle of the society. And that plays a very important role and it served as a unifying factor that contributed and that unite virtually most of the bandits together. For instance, you see them also talking about the activities of the vigilante and the NSAE. And when you look at these operations of the vigilante and the NSAE, it's nothing other than the idea of extrajudicial killings. The level of extrajudicial killings actually taking place in the rural areas is unimaginable even before the issue of rural banditry becomes a problem. And that is why the Fulani people feel they are not actually taken care of. They are absolutely rejected and dejected by the Nigerian states and they feel they are on their own. And the best thing to do is to fight for their freedom. And that idea of freedom fighting forming a union or a gang for the Fulani liberation movement, for instance, was the bedrock of rural banditry. So there are lots of issues put together. And more so, within the context of the Fulani, they feel what? The presidency, for instance, Mr. President is a Fulani man, and they feel if at all they need to be taken care of, there is no regime that's supposed to take good care of them other than this particular regime, that the head is someone that is their own or one of them and that becomes a problem and you see them some of them lamenting and lamenting bitterly about the level of neglect by the states here by both the federal government and also the state government and when you look at it absence of state presence plays also a very important role in the rural areas infrastructure wise for instance the presence of security in the rural areas 
is virtually zero. I am talking about villages, I'm talking about rural areas. You go to a village with three, four thousand people, you could not in any way see a single presence of the states. And that becomes a huge problem. So there is this type of high level of disconnection between the rural world and the urban world. And now it is the rural world fighting the urban world. Because of what? Because the rural world was neglected, the rural world was not taken care of, the rural world was absolutely spread from what we see in the urban centers. And that also constitutes a major problem. Talking about the issue of the climate change, talking about the farmer header issue, in my opinion, are just issues that are of secondary importance to this violent conflict. There has been farmer header conflict right from day one, right from the onset. And not only that, traditional conflict resolution mechanisms or dispute uh, resolution mechanisms, for instance, were actually at work and also addressing the farmer header clashes. And then the question is, where are they taken away by so many things, taken away by the issue of injustice, by the issue of corruption and lack of respect to traditional authorities? And today, some of these traditional authorities, village heads, district heads, and to some extent, areas in Zafara, in Sokoto, and in other places, are under the control of these parties. Simply because no state presence, no security presence, and the only thing they think they would do is to listen to the bandits, dance according to the tune of these bandits, and also subscribe to the view of the bandits. Not because they want to do so, but because they were neglected by the federal and the state authorities. And that constitutes a very big problem. Unless we get some of these things right, unless we fix some of these issues, lacuna and problems associated with the rural areas, I don't think peace will actually emerge in some of our urban centers and even at the national level. Mm -hmm. It's so important for me to talk about it because in trying to analyze a lot of these issues, some things become a talking point, right? And even though government censorious stance sometimes kick in to foil some of these things, but they do happen whether it's on social media or on internet videos. That's why I'm trying to tease out the issue of causality because some people will tell you without any iota of doubt that there is a fulanization agenda going on, and that is the underlying driver of this. Some will say there is a systematic massacre of Christians going on in that region that has drawn the attention of uh, the Trump administration on religious persecution and so many other issues. So it's very important for the purpose of the audience, and you know, Nigeria is a diverse, multi-ethnic society, it's easy for certain talking points to get away and, I mean, becomes something else. So, now, I get you correctly. Even the issue of causality is not just one thing. But, I'm saying it, maybe you guys are not, there's a huge level of state failure going on. Right? Now, my question then is, 
elections, politicians are campaigning again. As a matter of fact, one thing I learned from this conversation is that nobody is even talking about the issue of restructuring or decentralization of power in the context of this conflict. Right? We are all talking about VAT or how to administer Lagos or Potapot or Kaduna. <laughs> so, nobody is even talking about how empowering local governors, local institutions can actually bring peace, you know. But today, insecurity, if you ask anybody, insecurity is the number one national issue. Yeah. You know, all politicians are saying that if you let me, I'm going to solve this. Yeah. So, then my question is, given the level of state failure that I am saying that I can tease out from this conversation. If you had to sketch some kind of starting point or an attempt at addressing the issue, where would you start from? Yes, uh, I think uh, you've raised very critical issues that requires uh, deeper and a clearer explanation. Please. The first issue is uh, the colonization of maybe Nigeria or Northern Nigeria or whatever. I think if at all there is an ethnic group that is understudied and that is still less clear in terms of the nature, the operations and the relationship, I think is the following. There is a high level of internal division internal rivalry and internal conflicts among the Fulani. They are not in any way a one united ethnic group as we see in the case of the Hausa, in the case of the Lupi, and to some extent in the case of the Yoruba and the case of the Igbo. These are people that are so much attached to their traditional and the local way of life. Even if you are born and brought up a Fulani, if you don't have respect and value for the Fulani culture, they don't consider you as part of them. And that is why 90%, let me not exaggerate, 60 or 70% of the victims of rural violence, rural insecurity, rural banditry are Fulani. And 90% of the victims are not just Fulani, are also Muslims. You get the point? And you interact with some of these bandits. You talk about, okay, this person you kill, this person you rustle, cattle, this person you intimidate, this village you actually raided, for instance. It is a fully dominated village. They will tell you that. That particular person, that particular village, that particular community you are talking about, we don't consider them as members of the Fulani. They are not in any way respected within the Fulani cycle. They have their own code of conducts that serves as their guiding principles, that serve as what? As their constitution. Whoever stay away from that code of conduct, for instance, they have no value, no respect for him. And there is also a striking difference between an urban and a rural Fulani. For instance, the town Fulani is different from the village Fulani, the village Fulani is different from the nomadic Fulani. The nomadic Fulani is different from the stationed Fulani. All these nuances are not really clear. 
Now, if you decide to create a whole northern Nigeria to be under the control of the land, I am sure there will be a lot of crisis and a lot of conflict. Internal dynamics and internal differences will not even allow that to happen. Now, in spite of all this, if you have the knowledge and understanding of this, you go by the code of conduct. If you also don't speak the fulfilled language, they have no respect and no value for you. These are things that people don't understand. Talking about now a Fulani agenda, trying to create, no. And when it comes to the issue of suppression, exploitation, high level of injustice, I think the level of injustice committed against the Fulani in Nigeria could not be compared with injustice committed against any other ethnic group in Nigeria. These are people that I don't want to use the word docile, but are people that doesn't voice out. There are people that actually have this idea of not forgiving and also not forgetting. You commit a crime, you cheat a felony man, for instance today, if he sees you after 10-20 years, he will remember. And he will also wait for a chance and a better opportunity to retaliate. So now, we are simply paying the price of social injustice, exploitation, extortion that we've committed against these people over time. And it is manifested. And that is why when they decided to form a union in 2011, you find large number of Fulani people with long historical and deep-rooted grievances populating the gang. Virtually the first generation of the bandits, for instance, have that feelings. And you see, if I am given the opportunity today yeah. to address the problems of rural banditry as the president of this country, I think the easiest way to address the issue is local government autonomy. No more, no less. If you give local government autonomy today, you have no problem with the rural areas. Rural communities will actually have their local government chairman accountable, their councillors accountable. And when there was local government autonomy in the past, for instance, we've seen the level of infrastructural development taking place in the rural areas. Because every area, every ward, every community has representative in the local governance. And for instance, you cannot be relating with the local authorities, with the local government chairman, without complaining. And we've seen the level of projects executed by this local government chairman in the rural areas. And some of these projects we're talking about are still there in the rural areas. But the major bottleneck is governance will certainly not allow that to happen. Unless and until they are overpowered. Or else they will not allow local government autonomy. They will not because they are the one controlling the resources. All local government resources goes to the state governments. And when you go to the local government areas, to the rural areas, you find virtually nothing. So now, if you have this idea of local governance, they are given their autonomy, they get their, their subvention directly from federal, monthly for instance, you don't even need to hold this local government chairman accountable 
over what is happening in the rural areas. The local communities will be the one putting pressure on them to work. And you set in also the idea of high level of competition among the local government channels. Everyone will be competing. And whenever and wherever there is a rural or a local violence, rural conflict coming up, you hold the local government chairman accountable. So I think, in my opinion, the answer to some of these problems revolves around local government autonomy. I think, and I would agree with everything he said there, and I think, unfortunately, not to be too pessimistic, but that's one reason I don't see this situation dramatically improving anytime soon, because all of these issues, you know, I'm not a, an expert in Nigerian governance, but looking at like the security sector, for example, which is yeah. an area maybe I'm a bit more familiar with. We got a question when we gave our presentation at the University of Lagos yesterday, and one of the questions I got was about state police. People are always talking about state police. And as I was telling the, the person who asked the question after the presentation, I was like, look, I don't have a strong opinion one way or the other about state police or versus federal police. All I can say is that there's not going to be some law that just creates state police tomorrow. Like that's not going to happen because it all ties into larger questions of the federal structure. You can't just have, you know, a reform of the police into the state police level in a vacuum. Everything is about this larger question of the structure of the federal government, which also gets into this question of oil rents and, you know, how the government funds itself. And so you're not going to be able to pick at these little issues so much and say, okay, we'll do a bit, we'll restructure the police to do state police, we'll give more local government autonomy, because all of it ties into this bigger question about the structure of the Nigerian state. And I don't have like a vision for, ah, here's how you should reconstruct Nigeria to, to improve all these issues. But it's simply an observation that many of these reforms or these kind of challenges that people have identified that I think are already very much in the public consciousness about you know, people are demanding local government autonomy, state police, all that stuff. There's a reason it hasn't happened yet. And it's because there are significant structural political impediments to that happening. And so I think that if... You know, if the problem really is that, okay, the, it's the structure of the federal police force, that that's one of the major challenges, then that's not something that's going to be solved overnight. Mm -hmm. One thing that came to my mind now is the issue of power generation. Uh, National Assembly just passed a law that would actually require the ratification of two-thirds of the states. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Good Lord, did that happen? Yeah. That then allows state governments to generate their own power. So we've all been locked into this dysfunctional federal exactly. structure. Mm -hmm. So, like you, James, I'm not super optimistic. But one thing I want to push you guys, your, your work is giving a lot of exposure, and I'm sure a lot more international exposure is still ahead. Hopefully there will be a book. <laughs> <laughs> so, now, one, one thing that regularly comes up is... There was a time the president wrote an op-ed on the Financial Times asking for international aid on security, securing weapons, lifting some of the restrictions, and all that. My point is, how should the international community engage on this bandwidth issue? Because we just talked about how the security forces sometimes are not the appropriate force level contact yeah. for some of these problems there's been issues of extrajudicial killings even by the security forces there's been issue of excessive force even in bombings air raids you know collateral damage and all that and the same government that controls 
the security forces then goes to the international community, whether it's the EU or China or the United States, for aid and assistance in tackling security. But given the complexity of this issue, how should the international community engage on this? It's really tough. The international community, I think when we say that, what you really mean is like Western governments, right? Yes, and then, you yes. Know, absolutely. China, China is not either, maybe, you know, depending yeah. on what yeah. the context is. Yeah, um, and the Western yeah. alliance. Yeah, exactly, basically. the Western alliance. Yeah. Um, I think these conflicts are so complex, deep-rooted in these kind of systemic issues in Nigeria. And frankly, we just don't have a great track record. You know, speaking as an Oyibo man, we don't have a great track record um, of kind of intervening in complex conflicts, situations like this. I think that one thing that I was very wary of, this is something that we kind of touch on a bit at the end of our study on jihadization, is that, you know, for now, the bandits have a much more parochial local agenda than jihadists. Yeah. Um, these Ansaru, one of the things that was really interesting, interviewing people who had heard Ansaru preach in their villages, in these villages in Birniwari, they would say, yeah, Ansaru, they're always complaining about America. They're always saying, your fight is not with Nigeria, your fight is not with this, your fight is with America, they're the great Satan, they're hurting us. And these people, they think, huh? You know, that doesn't really resonate with them. They think, no, no, my complaints is with the local governments and, you know, the fact that I don't have road and the school and stuff. They're not thinking in terms of this big ideological struggle. I think it's the same for the bandits, you know. I was able to interview several bandits who, they see me, a foreigner, a Christian man, they're just, oh, they're very interested, they want to learn, oh, what's... What's, you know, they're even asking, what's Bature land like? You know, are there different tribes of Bature? Very curious. They did not have these strong preconceived notions about kind of the West and whether or not it's a friend or an enemy. It was very remote to them, you know? And so I think that if you had the kind of Western powers be coming in and taking a more visible role in, for example, security assistance or something, then in some ways you'd be giving propaganda to the jihadists, right? You know, and I'm not saying anyone's suggesting this now, but since your question was, okay, the Nigerian military is not uh, handling the situation sufficiently, what can the international community do? I do not think that the answer is to kind of take on a more forceful role, right? If you had these, like, Reaper drones flying over northwestern Nigeria, these bandits, you know, their fight is a local fight, but all of a sudden they're getting pursued by U.S. military hardware, they go, what's happening? Then that's the moment that Ansaru can say, ah, we told you, see, yeah. your real enemy, it's America. Yeah. You know, you weren't bothering anyone, but these Americans, they're, you know, they're ideologically hell-bent on killing Muslims, and so that's why you have to join us. So I think, I mean, this is a very long way, I'm not giving you a satisfactory answer, because <laughs> I'm essentially saying what I think we shouldn't do, but I think that it's important to stress that kind of level of caution, that whatever approach the international community, in scare quotes, takes, I think it needs to be very careful, very clear to let Nigerians lead on this to not be taking too visible a role in some ways, especially on the security front. And I think that's a challenge, right? Because as you know, it's a dilemma in some ways because the Nigerian security forces have not uh, shown the capacity to handle this. But I think that very often, you know, the medicine can be worse than the disease. And so I think that that's, that's kind of my word of caution. But I'll let I, Dr. Rufai... I, I get that, and I'll get the doctor in a minute. So my question is actually a lot more subtle than that. Of course, everything you say is true. If you have drones flying over the Northwest, this will certainly make it worse. But what I'm asking is, there is some engagement going on. Either it is funding or it is selling military hardware to the Nigerian government yeah. that probably makes this worse. 
maybe not directly ah, from, okay. from the Western Alliance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so what, what I'm saying is how should the engagement change mm -hmm. if it's going to, to be a bit more progressive? Even if it is to fund, I mean, more local researchers mm -hmm. to better understand yeah. the problem, right? So, so that's I mean, to say the obvious, yeah. at least for me in this particular case, it took an Oyibo man, yeah. like you said, to be aware of his work. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's true. It's one of the and which is not supposed to be so. Exactly. Yeah. Right? So, I'll go back to that. How exactly should engagement be, even at diplomatic level, not just force? How do we better make the incentive and issues clear? So, I mean, Dr. Ekam, win. You see, uh, in my own opinion, Rather than going too much uh, international, looking at the Western world, I think to address this issue properly and adequately, the Nigerian government has a better, clearer, and deeper understanding of Northwest problem, unfortunately, than even the Nigerian states. Because when this conflict actually started, it was more or less a cross-border issue between Nigeria and Nigeria. And what the Nigerian government fantastically did during that period is to profile all the bandits along the border, both on the Nigerian sides and also on the Nigerian sides. Not just an ordinary profiling, but rather to have the names, the locations, and also the family background of each and every potential bandits. And of course, they succeeded in drawing a map of their locations and also their relationship. And when that was also going on, for instance, every local head, I mean, either a village head or a district head or an emir in Niger, for instance, in that particular part of the world, they have the names of these people. And these people or these bandits, for instance, were declared wanted. And we've seen, of course, going by my interviews and also field work in some part of Niger, where whenever a bandit comes in, they are the authority. And that was how they succeeded in picking larger number of them that are in Niger. On the Nigerian side, when the Northwestern governance, for instance, feels there is need for collaboration with their counterparts in Niger. Of course, they had series of meetings with the governors of Northwest, Kano, Kazena, Sokoto, Zampara, and the rest. But their unfortunate conclusion is that we are not serious people. These governors are not in any way committed to ending banditry anytime soon. Because there were, of course, some series of uh, joint operations but at the end of the day, the Nigerian side that were committed and also ready to end the problem were rather given out to the bandit to the extent that they lost some of their officers and men in the course of fighting banditry. And they felt that is basically coming from the neglect of the Nigerian or the Northwestern authorities. And on that basis, they cease to assist, they cease to discuss issues 
related to insecurity in the northwest of Nigeria. And not only that, if today the Nigerian government decides to strengthen its border security, the movement of small arms and the light weapons into the northwest, into Nigeria, will certainly reduce and reduce drastically. But since they feel we're not serious people, we're not committed to end the problem or the security challenges, for instance, they let it go and they loosely operate along the border. And we've seen cases and instances where people were saying that, okay, there are cases of people moving into the country with arms and ammunitions across the border, but Nigerian border officials, for instance, will decide to even close their eyes and feel nothing is happening. And some of these arms and ammunitions, as long as they are not going to be used in Nigeria, they let it move into the northern part. So instead of looking for assistance, financial, funded, selling of uh, military hardware from the Western world, the problem still remains local. I said it's local because you cannot differentiate the people living in Daura, the president's hometown, for instance, and the people living in Kwangalam, which is a Niger Republic. It is a stone throw. They are the same father, people from the same father, the same mother. They are people of the same family. And now, there could be other forms of engagement at the local level without necessarily engaging or even involving the state government, not to talk of the federal government. So if you strengthen this old relationship between these border communities, it is enough, for instance, for you to address the issue. And the unfortunate scenario, the unfortunate happening now is that you see two, three kilometers, for instance, if you take Ilela, you can trek from Ilela, which is in Nigeria, in Sokoto State, to Pani, which is just three, four kilometers to Pani. And you see absolute peace, absolute security, absolute harmony in Pani, and high level of insecurity in Ilela. And what the larger number of the people in Ilela do now is when it is six o'clock, they trek down to the other side of the border. To sleep, not to some extent, not to even sleep in houses, in villages. They sleep in an open space along the border. Wake up in the following morning and move to Nigeria for their daily business right. and economic activities. So wow. one begins to wonder what is actually happening. Not only in Ilela, you go to Kwangalam, you find the same thing. You go to Menuja, you find the same thing. You go to Jibia, you find the same thing. You ask questions what is actually happening and today some of these border communities have more confidence trust pride on the nigerian security than nigerian security and in an event of attack they rather call the zanderma for instance in niger to call other security operators along the border in niger than to call nigerian security operators so the trust confidence it's not there at all. So if now we can strengthen international relations within these border areas, look at issues around ECOWAS protocol, for instance, free movement and all that. Strengthen that aspect. I think it is something that will go a long way in addressing some of these challenges. Rather than seeking for funds, military hardware, support from the international communities. And no right-thinking nation in the Western world will engage itself or involve itself in the mess that is happening in, in Nigeria because it is a local problem. I hope not. It is a local problem.
you get the point. And probably the only thing I think they will do in, in cases like that is to provide probably the necessary advice, the necessary uh, military training and all that. If not, nobody will just come directly and get themselves into that. And not only that, the major people, uh, people having a very serious threat on this are basically the Chinese. As we speak, there are a large number of Chinese nationalities that were abducted by these bandits. Though some people say bandit, and I you I said no, not bandit, rather Boko Haram and Saru and the rest of them. Because they are people that relate directly with the rural communities. And because of that relationship, they are vulnerable to abduction. And unfortunately, if you interact with some of these Chinese nationalities, the information and the needs you will get from them is threatening. It's threatening because we've seen instances and situations where the security guards that are supposed to provide security to these people where the same people collaborated, serving as informant, serving as spy agent to some of these bandits and also to some of these uh, Boko Haram members, meaning they facilitate the abduction of these nationalities and at the end of the day, they get their own share of the news. So there are lots of ugly stories taking place in the country. At times it's even better you don't know than you know because you know you won't even say because the situation is completely hopeless. I think that last point, or the, the penultimate point about the strength and cooperation with Nigeria and Niger, I think that's a that's that's a great comment in part because also it's not something that the international community, you know, that Western powers need to do. The mechanisms for that exist, right? Yeah. You have ECOWAS, you already have all these bilateral forums and stuff between them. So it's just there needs to be the political will on both sides to actually work together on this. This isn't something that you need to turn Washington or Brussels or London for these mechanisms for regional cooperation already exist. It's just a question of whether there's the political will to use them to actually uh, channel effort towards addressing these issues. So, I mean, your jobs must be hard because sometimes the numbers that you deal with and analyze are actual human lives. And I know we've been analytical and uh, impersonal so far. These are serious issues with real lives at stake. People who are dying thousands every month now in Nigeria. So, on that sober note, I think we can close the podcast with this last light-hearted question. What's the one idea? It's a bit of a tradition on the show. What's the one idea that inspires you, that you would like to see spread? that they like to see people everywhere believe, adopt, or just be fascinated by it. And it could be anything. So what what keeps you guys going? What keeps you guys slogging through this? Uh, caffeine keeps me going. It's hard to be optimistic sometimes, but I think, I think seeing... I don't know, maybe it's a bit banal, but seeing the energy that uh, many of my Nigerian colleagues have for actually trying to address this issue, I think that helps me avoid fatalism, maybe. I think even Dr. Rufai, you know, we're sharing accommodation here in Unilag, and he was up several hours later than I was last night. <laughs> he was up before me, and so I think sometimes if I get fatalistic or tired, I remember that there are a lot of good people, not just Dr. Rufai, that, you know, I have the benefit of working with a number of colleagues in Abuja, Kaduna, you know, people up in Rousseau who genuinely 
better solutions to this than they need to be pushing for. And for them, the stakes are much higher than they are for me. I have to be honest about that, you know? And so I think that seeing the enthusiasm, the energy that people bring to this, it acts as a check on my kind of instinct towards pessimism and fatalism. And yeah, I think that's important. I think for me, all I want to see is peace. Harmony, inter-community relations and inter-community collaboration that actually used to happen in the past, where we have a free rural world. People operate freely, relate freely, and that love for one another is there. But the unfortunate story is that today, no trust, no freedom. In fact, nothing works actually in the rural areas. And you interact with the rural communities, more especially in Zamfara, where I moved and where I conducted a larger part of my research. Some of these people will tell you they don't need anything from the state governments. All they want at the moment is nothing other than peace. A peace that will actually give them an opportunity to continue with their social, economic, and political way of life. They have their own definition of comfort. If it actually rains cat and dog every year, they consider themselves as the most prosperous people. Because it is from that rain, the grains they produce, different types of crops they harvest, for instance, that they run their daily and the yearly life. An ordinary farmer in Zamfara, in Kasena, in some part of Sokoto, is not in any way poor, going by our own definition of poverty, poverty line, and also someone to be poor. Why? Because they have their own way, local and the rural way of life, the harvest, they rear their animals, and you see them every year paying money, millions, to go on pilgrimage, hajj, without intervention from the state, without a penny from anybody. And of course, from the full stop, they sustain their life. And they will tell you, if at all there is anything they need from the state, is the infrastructural facilities, particularly the roads, access roads, where they will access the market. No more, no less. They don't need electricity, for instance. They will tell you that, take away your education. They don't bother about that. As long as they have operational Islamic schools, for instance, they will tell you that, take away even your justice system, as long as their traditional village heads are strong, alive, and active to their responsibilities. They believe in them, and they are capable of providing them with absolute justice. So all this beauty in the rural areas are today no more. And what do we see in the rural areas today? A high level and increasing number of internally displaced persons. People that were millionaires, I mean millionaires in the actual sense of the war before banditry today are beggars. Today, leaves from hand 
come out, they have become so much degraded, wallowing in absolute and abject poverty as a result of this rural conflict. And what do we see in the rural areas today? We see a large army of internally displaced persons, as I said, child prostitution, and we've seen marriage and the respected women that lost their beloved ones, their husbands, their relatives, their breadwinners, turning into prostitutes just for them to survive. And the unfortunate story is that nobody cares, nobody reports, and nobody tends to know that some of these things are happening. You will understand this better if you go to some of the rural areas. They are poor not because they are naturally being poor, but because they were denied access to their farmlands by the bandits. And their own definition of life is land. Life begins and ends with land. If they have access to land, and in farmlands, for instance, they have access to a decent living and also to a life that could be compared with any other life in the urban centers. They don't need your water supply, they don't need your electricity, they don't need anything that one could think of within the context of a comfortable life in the urban center. They are rural setting, they are comfortable with it because you see some of them spending five, six years without coming to the state capital. You ask them, you've never been to Busso, for instance, which is your state capital. They will tell you, what will I do in Busso? If at all you see me in Busso or any of the urban center, probably I'm going to the airport flying out to Mecca. And look at it. These people will also tell you that the best people you can easily manage, governor and administer with ease, are Nigerians are also the rural dwellers. You live a comfortable life, you steal their money, you engage yourself in corruption, they never bother. All they want is peace. If you give them peace, continue with your life. Because their belief is that in the year after you will account for your deed. And that is where the problem lies. So in my opinion, I want to see life going back to normal. The way it used to be in the past, a prosperous and happy rural areas. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Pai. Thank you, James. It's been fantastic talking to both of you. And hopefully when next we speak about this, things Thank you both so much. If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to the show on any of your favorite podcast vendors. That may be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or any of the rest. Don't forget to rate us on your platform. It helps others find the show. Or you can just listen or download on our website, www.ideasuntrapped.com. Thank you.